0: I'm Vivian Host, a freelancer for Resident Advisor, and I'm thrilled to be sitting here in Brooklyn, New York, with one of the godfathers of hardcore, Lenny D. Hey. A New York native, he is considered by many the first hardcore techno DJ. In 1991, he introduced America to the hardcore techno sound when he started the first label devoted to the style Industrial Strength Records. Industrial strength is still going strong 28 years later, with artists like Delta 9, Nazenbluten, Menu Le Malan, and Mark pani as PCP, among many others. Of course, we're going to be talking a lot about industrial strength and the evolution of hardcore techno and gabber in the next hour, but I want to go back to the roots a little bit since a lot had already happened in the life of Lenny D (laughs) before hardcore even came along. First of all, Lenny, welcome
1: to the exchange. It's good to be here. Thank you for having me for sure.
0: Um, I guess if we can take it back to the very beginning, Mm. what part of New York City did you grow up in and tell me a little bit about what the neighborhood was like, who you were around growing up and kind of what you guys did as teenagers there.
1: Oh, I lived in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn, South Brooklyn. Um, I had a pretty average, you know, growing up. My parents really supported me a lot because I went to art school. You know, I had loads of friends. And once I discovered music, that was it. I was hooked. You know, I seen DJing, radio shows with all these great DJs from New York City. So I didn't really spend as much time with in the neighborhood i was just, just locked in my room just playing records every day like a lunatic but the neighborhood is yeah it's a little troublesome you know uh, music got me out of trouble for sure i used to get into fights and then i'm saying why am i doing this like what the hell is going on i just went back into i went into the music and kind of avoided all the stress basically
0: So, just to give people an idea who are not Familiar with the New York City geography, Sheepshead Bay is sort of next to Coney Island. Yes. And it's a long way from Times Square or where a lot of tourists go when they come to New York. I mean, you're probably an hour on the train. Definitely. At least from like the middle of Manhattan. Um, Were you guys going into the city much as teens or was New York back then, did it feel more like this is our neighborhood? We don't leave our neighborhood, or we're going from our neighborhood to these other guys' neighborhoods. Yeah,
1: it felt like I was in Manhattan. Yeah, I was in Manhattan. Now it just feels like I'm in New York. But yeah, like Brooklyn had a lot of clubs. So I was got my first job at a roller rink, and then I would play in some other clubs that are definitely not open, Long Island. And then as the, everything evolved, we went, I was doing parties with Frankie Bones, and then it really kicked off for us when we were doing the parties in Staten Island, funny enough. <laughs> but that's kind of where it happened. We were, we were playing techno. We were doing house music, but nobody else in these type of clubs were doing that. So we had to figure out a way to, to actually play what we really liked. So what we were doing was taking all the acapellas of all these songs that these kids knew. And all of a sudden, we were mixing them really long, like the whole thing over, like, Adonis, for example. And after a while, we just stopped playing the acapellas, and all the kids knew the record. So it was kind of like a thought-out way to do it, because we knew already if we would have came out just with that, it would have been much. So that was the... Okay, so what connection. were
0: these acapellas that the kids would have known?
1: Like Liz time? Torres, all these freestyle records, uh, Peach Boys, uh, whatever had an acapella. And back then, it was pretty popular to have an acapella. That's why all these records have all those <laughs> samples in them. So it was like a various, I mean, Taylor Dane, all kinds of stuff. You'd think, what the hell are you talking about? But we would mix them flawlessly over these tracks. So it was And the like,
0: tracks were coming like, from Chicago, Detro-
1: Chicago or Chicago n- where Detroit, Brooklyn, because we were making them still. We were making the tracks at that time. There was no we already had I don't know how many records out by then. So it was like a kind of a melting point of all that stuff into one big kaboom. But that's when I met Lord Mike. I convinced all of them to come with me, Okay, actually.
0: I have to, we have to go back even oh, further even to how we even, how got you, to that? I'm sorry, how we even got to Frankie Bones in first place. Okay, before all that, so you're playing in the roller disco. I'm playing in the roller and disco. And you're playing disco.
1: I was playing disco. So I was what, 17.
0: what was were the first. records that people wanted to
1: hear when you were in the roller disco? Mm, hit and Run Lover, The the Break, uh, There Before the Grace of God uh crank it up uh craft work uh gino socio club electric uh man so this is like this is early stuff that I'll be 1980s. Honest, this was very early 19 i was 17 so yeah it was in the 80s but i was really looking backwards so i you know i was young but I was buying little records here and there. My mother would give me money. I'd go right to the store. My friends would buy pot. I'd buy music. So I thought it was a better deal. So, you know, I was just really engulfed. I lived it, you know. And all the DJs that I heard on the radio, like Aldo Moran, Ralphie D, Tommy Musto, Tony Humphreys, Larry Levan, David Morales, uh, Latin Rascals, uh, I, I can just go on and on and on and they really influenced me. They were doing stuff with tape editing, medleys, which are now mashups, but with no sync buttons. Uh, So that really got me intrigued. So it was really coming, my influences were really those guys because the bar was so hard. You know, you try to mix a disco record, you'll know what I mean, it's live, you know? So you had to really know when to play it and all that. But these were basically the roller disco songs, which by the way, had more electronic music elements in them. So I wasn't playing like the tramps and things like that. I was already done with that, you know, in my own way. So enroll roller disco, it's got to be fast. And I had the advantage too. I was a few years after that, I say I was working in a record distributor. So I had all these imports, high energy German stuff. The first Sven Vathe, when I met him, he says, well, "You even know that record?" I said, "Yeah, I owned it. I used to play it at the fucking yeah at my at the clubs." He's like, he was shocked, but yeah. So that really helped me because I was getting a European influence, American influence, and it all just mashed together. I would go to Vinyl Mania and just buy stuff because Jelly Bean was my. Big man, I used to sneak out to the fun house. And this is uh,
0: Jelly Bean Benitez. Yeah. If people was, don't know him as a DJ. They probably know him for producing yeah, the first. Yeah. But, you know, they, they,
1: they think he's for house and disco. But what he really should own up to, I'm sorry, John, uh, is the electronic music side. He was playing stuff that, you know, all the Arthur Baker, all the John Roby, all these really like Depeche Mode and, you know, Heaven 17 and, uh, you know, Human League and, you know, Casio, Key West and all these like, you know, kodo and all these kind of tracks that really to me were the, the influence to go further because they were holding on to their disco grooves but everything was 4-4, you know, playing with synths that there really wasn't MIDI so the guys had to really play everything, you know. So it was a different time but it was the beginning for me, for everything, it was just the 808 started, you know, all these things, Arthur Baker made Planet Rock, so, and I got to work for these guys later on, which was woo, you know, so, yeah, that was, like, the biggest thing, I used to, like, the guys in the (laughs) roll disco were playing disco, disco, and I was playing disco with a little bit of bump, and then when the house thing came, and all that stuff was after, for sure.
0: So how did you make the leap from DJing and being in the record pools and working at the distributor to the production side? I mean, I'm glad you mentioned that you worked in the studio with Arthur Baker and John yeah. Roby because they were so instrumental in the... Totally. I mean, the roots of a lot of the stuff that we hear on the radio now and a lot of the pop we hear now. Yeah, totally. was a great debt to everything from Planet Rock to all the great freestyle yeah. hits. I O U and just oh, everything just that was made goes on
1: there. and on on. C- c- funky Soul Macosa, uh, New Order, which I happened to remix for, for him, which was like a big wow for me. Remixing Confusion, Ooh, forget it, I was in my glory, and you know I became author's production assistant for like two years, and with Victor Seminelli, the two of us were were the team. I went from cleaning garbage pails in one month to being the production assistant the next month after. It was the craziest story ever. Uh, but yeah, and I just remember the first day I came in and the engineer is like, okay, Len, get me an egg sandwich and coffee and da da da, da. And I says, I said, did you read the, today's session sheet? He says, no. I says, well, I can't do that for you today. <laughs> he goes, oh, you know, you're my friend. I said, no, no, go look at the production sheet. I said, this is my session today. And he looks at me, he goes, what you talking about? He runs in, he comes back, and he says, wow when did this happen? I said, oh, last week. (laughs) And he goes to me, one thing he said, he goes, so does this mean I could smoke pot in the sessions? I said, as long as you don't fuck it up, you can do whatever you want. (laughs) He goes, I knew I was going to love you today. (laughs) So yeah, it, it um, it was an experience. I got thrown in basically. Author found out it was me. I entered in a mix contest and I put the tape in the pile, but I didn't put my name on it or anything like that. And he goes, look, I should throw this one away. All these suck. He goes, I bet you this is the the best one. And he doesn't put his name or nothing. He goes, let's just see. And he put it on. He goes, oh, man, I love this. He goes, where's the envelope? I said, there's none. He goes, see, told you. What an idiot. I says, ah, it's me. And then it all hit. We had a meeting for about 30 minutes, found out all the things I was doing, which he already knew. And he says, okay, you're fired. I said, what? He says, yeah, you can't do this. He says, I can't have you cleaning up pails in my house. He goes, so next week, tell the girl you're the production assistant and I'll give you a list of shit to do. And I looked at him I says, are you kidding me? He goes, no, I'm not kidding. You and Victor, you work like animals in here. So you're in. And my first gig was Al (laughs) Jarreau. The hardest thing I ever had to do in my freaking life Uh, of an artist I knew and respected, but this was totally out of my comfort zone. So it really trained me how to do music, like real music. So I was already had hits way before that, like electronic music stuff that we used to do on tape and little mixers and 808s and all kinds of stuff. So by the time I got there, I was pretty adverse on how to use most of the gear because like some of the other guys, I went that route where they went more different way. You know, I, I've always known that if I didn't know how to do this, I'm screwed. I'm always relying on someone else. So I just went into engineering. I went to school. So by the time I went to authors, I couldn't be an engineer I, uh, because I, assistant, because I just wasn't ready for that. But I can produce records. So I just kind of skipped the engineering. And then I started learning about the SSL because I was in a million dollar room. So, you know, I really. Learned a lot from that. Recording, mixing, equipment, everything. I was in my, I was in my glory. I wish I was still there, really.
0: <laughs> so quickly, I mean, when you were working with Arthur Baker and John Roby and even some of your time working with Niall Rogers at Skyline, what were some of the other records that you would have worked on?
1: Ooh. Wow, there's, there's a lot. Uh, it was so many. I, I can't remember them all, really. Kiara. That was a good one with Shanice Williams. That was a gold record and number one R&B on the Billboard charts. There was also Deborah Harry. There was also, like I said, New Order. There was also The Tramps, which I actually produced at the end. So they were kind of in a different way. I did this stuff with uh, the guy who did Do The Hustle. Uh, Metal bands... (sighs) Just, man, so much. Corrosion of Conformity, uh, The Exploited. Uh, shit, man. Uh, it just goes. There's so many. I, I produced uh, MC Globe from the Soul Sonic Force. <sighs> yeah, there were so many. I, I, so I, is- used to, I used to go around New York City, right? I got so well known for doing overdubs and stuff to records. I would get hired to go into a session and just do overdubs, loops. I go in with my calzone case of discs. I'd have everything that I wanted in the room, and I would just sit there, making loops. Make. I did the same thing with KLF back in the day, uh, which was really great because they already knew me. I did the same thing for Enjoy. I also gave a lot of my sounds to Neil McClellan, who was doing the Prodigy, because I had all those breaks. You know, it, at the time in Europe, yeah, they were only starting. Five years or whatever, the DJs were still, I was already, by the time I went to Europe, I was already playing 10 years. I knew how to mix. I knew what the records were. And when I started in, you know, the girl who helped me at the distributor uh, was also working at Arthur Baker's running his criminal records at that time. So it all kind of. It just went. I, I left the underground thing to go to author, which I still felt was where I wanted to be. And I was doing tape editing. I've done like some of the first records on Excel. So there was all this stuff. And I really wanted to be an engineer and a real producer. So I thought that was it. Then after a while, it just got to me. You know, I said, man, why is this guy? I'm producing with Neil McClellan, Eric Cooper, and the girl from like Enjoy, who has big hits and the ain't r guys going oh the hi hats too loud oh this maybe you should change this and every change is $2000 change cuz i got to go rent the room get it recalled fix the hi hat do all the prints get everything reedited so it was still a tape basis you know it's not like now all these kids don't realize i i think that was another reason all this gear, why there wasn't so many producers? Because A, you needed the money to get the gear. There was no way around that. Uh, Record labels were really picky because they had the best of the best because these were the guys that could afford the sessions. They were songwriters. So there wasn't as many producers there is now. They didn't have those options unless you lived it and really made the concerted effort. And I was earning money. So I just bought the gear Get the next piece of gear. My DJing started taking off, and then the gear habit just went all all the way up the uh, the ramp. So yeah, it was um, it was like a combination of everything, basically.
0: Yeah, it seems like a lot happened for you in a very small space of time. Well,
1: in the eighties, I was making these records, right? I had freaking no idea what these records were doing. You know, I didn't know anything. I was just thinking, all right, another bomb. Nobody's playing it. Nobody cares. Going to New York City, shunned out. I was like, fuck it. You know, I'm just going to keep going. Met Frankie, kept going again. Then I think it was 88. They, John Scherer, who was managed, started to manage the other guys. And then I went after them. And when I went to England for the first time, I was shocked. I couldn't believe how any of these guys knew anything any of these fucking records and telling me all this stuff and then playing them at the party. And I'm like, oh, fucking hell, man. What's going on here? I don't even know why I'm in this country, but I'm fucking loving this. I said, shit. I could, like, maybe start in Europe. freaking America, man. That was just driving me crazy anyway because it was like, it wasn't like the opportunities. You know, there was one DJ, one club, maybe two in the night. And that was it. So if you didn't get that slot, You weren't getting shit, you know? So unless a promoter made a party and had you there, but still, you were only one DJ. I came from playing seven-hour sets to knocking it down in an hour. That was the biggest thing for me, which was so mind-boggling that I can do this for an hour. So I actually changed... This one, I think I created my style doing that. Like, I don't play like anybody else. That is a for sure. I don't look like anybody else. I don't play records like anybody else. There's some DJs that put on records. I'm a DJ that plays records. It's a different kettle of fish, really, for me. So it was, yeah, I just had to knock it down. And then all of a sudden, I started realizing, man, I'm going to just keep going. Like, house music, I got bored because in an hour, I didn't feel didn't feel right to me, really, you know, with those records, the way they were made and stuff. So the techno was, that was sort of the way to go, really. I felt freedom, and House was getting more like disco. It was getting kind of popular, but not in the way that I was into, you know. I just felt I needed more, and that's how it really started, that urge to go further and further further until I wound up with the hardcore, and I realized... I think I hit the ceiling. I don't know where else I'm going to go with this, you know. But I
0: evolved. Just to to go a little deeper into what you're talking about. So you are making records with Victor Simonelli and with Frankie Bones. um, And myself as well. And... Bunch you know, of- Frankie Bones at that time is making Bones Breaks. You you and Frankie have a project together called Looney Tunes. And one of the mm. tracks that you made that got put out on New Groove, a New York label, um, is called Just As Long As I Got You. Yeah, totally. And <laughs> from 1989. Yeah. And yeah. this track gets... Licensed, I guess, for XL Recordings in the UK. Yeah. Now this is the same XL Recordings that we know today that has Adele and you know all these people. But sure. back in that day, they had the Prodigy, Johnny L. It was big, they really were coming up when I was important. Ready. Like yeah, it was <laughs> that's, that's, it was about to blow up into one of the most important rave labels, and it's always been so interesting to me the conversation between. American, this very American underground dance music and like the UK and Europe, because you know, the the new wave records and the new beat records and everything came here from the UK, Kraftwerk, and then people in New York, Chicago, Detroit Mm. reinterpreted it, and it's a completely different thing altogether.
1: Totally, totally. we'll see. All this
0: techno and breaks and whatever. It just went, and then you know, you guys have these records that are really, really instrumental in the early UK rave scene in Acid House and then what becomes
1: breakbeat hardcore we made DJ hardcore. records that's why That's that was the difference we took sampling to the freaking max I mean that was the real difference you know where guys were playing with their little synthesizers and their kick drums and all that and that was really great but I wasn't a musician you know okay I can play a bit now I can play a bit then too but you know it was just like there's a point where I, I can't go any further so the, the tracks actually remained minimal but yeah, we started sampling all these records because we were from that generation. The new guys, they didn't even know what that was. I mean, I made a bootleg of Amen, and that's what they all made drum and bass out of. That's why I'm in all those fucking books. You know what I mean? Because they—they they were. I was playing this track from Miami, which I can't say the name because it's a little bit offensive now, but that was, it's called Let the Bass Kick, and basically this had that, that Amen break with the bass and all that stuff, and then it kicked off. I was the only one playing that. Basically, it was such a rare off. You could probably find it in a shop for like 50 cents now. But that's how I got into all, all that stuff. And the New York scene was, uh, it was really techno by the time it got to that stuff. Like, you know, Frankie and me, I made a lot of the bones breaks with him because I was engineering. I did all, all the taping and this stuff. And then Frankie would do his own tracks. So we mixed everything together. And my thing was, I, I don't care about Lenny D. I just want to make the tracks. I just I just didn't care, you know, Frankie was more into, yeah, let's promote let's be this, and I said, well, you do it, I says i gotta I wanna do this shit, I says you know, so we kind of like met in the middle, and that's how we we grew together basically it was it was quite interesting, but just as long as I got you, we already sold like twenty twenty five thousand copies in America <laughs> before it even went to the u k so and then they started taking uh all the other records from us. Victor Simonelli did the first XL record. Nobody knows that. But he did the first one with Arthur. So, yeah, I got a good relationship with all those guys over the years. And then it really kicked off for me when I did the KLF. That was it. I started getting remixes out the ass. And I did Big Country. I mean, all kinds of crazy. What KLF record? What Time is Love. (laughs) The big hit. I was in there with, with the guys. And they... Wanted the loops, you know, it's still part of that thing, and I had to leave the next morning. So I was doing all this work like really fast, as fast as we can get it recorded. So I went out of the room for a minute, and I hear this guy rapping in the other the other room. And I said, I went I said, "Who the hell is this?" I stuck my head in there, I said, "This guy's freaking great." I went back in the room, I said, "Man, come outside for a second. Here, listen to this guy." He's like, "Yeah, he's good." Well, what do you mean? What are you thinking? I said, "Why don't you get him to?" put a rap over this track I said what the hell else we gonna do with this this is a number one pop record in the UK when it came out it influenced every rave record and it's like Jesus Christ Superstar (laughs) that was what it was taken from you know just replayed Uh, and then they got the guy after I left and that became another big hit for them you know I had an ear for things that's like when I DJ they say oh how do you do that? how do you find this I I just just like with the label I had an ear for something. I I don't know. They all asked me, how did you know to pick this? I I didn't. I just had balls like a horse. I just put it out because I knew what I was seeing in Europe from the people, this was what they wanted. I kept going. Like I was saying earlier, I ran out of the techno, and then it started going into the, the stuff from the continent of Europe, which was not fully techno. I started going into the German scene. And after May Day, when I played Mescalinium United, was the first record on Industrial Strength and Mark's first big monster record, which was, it was, we were holding on to it, and I had the Europa disc, the really the best way to make the vinyl, silver fucking or gold record from the, from the mother. I never seen 15,000 people all put their hands in the air at one time. Never have I ever, and still to this day, when that record first came on, Mark and I was sitting there like, looking at this, I says, bro, it's over. And I played after Jeff Mills and poor Jeff. Oh, he had such a bad time. He, somebody put those little things on the back of the turntables and he didn't notice it and he didn't have a good set. It really wasn't even his fault. You know, nobody looks at that, but I was seeing it and I couldn't get to him. I was like, oh, fuck man, how do I tell him what the fuck? Cause he's in, in it, you know, you don't, it's kind of common practice not to – if he's having a tough time, he has to kind of deal with it. But I couldn't get to him because they wouldn't let me in the in the thing because I was just at the angle. I said, oh, he's fucked. He goes, Lenny, man, these turntables, blah, blah, blah. I said, Jeff, I'm so sorry. Doop. Doop. I threw them off. He goes, oh, fuck. I didn't even see that. I says, oh, he goes, it's on, huh? I said, mm-hmm, it's on. So what, what year were was friends. this Mayday we were Day rave? Though, Mayday was the first rave – after the Berlin Wall crocked. So Germany was fucking ready to have it. So that had a big influence too, you know? Like, What made hardcore wasn't the records. And everybody thinks it's the music. It, it wasn't. I had to go and find what I thought would be hardcore. And the difference between me and the rest of the guys, it's not like they weren't playing those tracks. But I played them one after another, like a boom, boom, boom. And we're not from R&S Records. He was at the freaking May Day. He goes, Lenny D. He goes, that's hardcore, man, what you just did. I said, you know, maybe it is. And then Mark and I was like, yeah, it's hardcore. Hardcore techno. Hardcore whatever you want to call it. But it was really techno. You know, we were just evolving, and then, you know, the kick drums and the tempo, yeah, good 130 BPM (laughs) you know, that was fast back then, 135 woo, you were steaming you know, so what you hear the records now, you just think, oh, that really isn't hardcore, but back then if you hear what was coming out I was definitely in it, for sure And then I was working with Watts, so I had all the records. I didn't go to record stores and get somebody else's taste. I went to the source. So every record I used to buy after a certain point, i just go to Midtown, USA Import, any, you know, all the Italian distributors. They'd say, Lenny, we all sell your records. Come buy whatever you want. And that's how how I put all the records together.
0: Okay, I'm going to take it back for people who maybe don't know some of the stuff that you just (laughs) name-dropped. (laughs) if you're an ultimate raver for life like us too you probably have watched the YouTube videos or maybe you were even there but okay Mayday is a huge rave in Germany this guy Mark that you're referring to is Mark Acardepane, who is from a crew called Planet Core Productions in Frankfurt another godfather of this hardcore sound indeed you and Mark are pretty much the ones responsible for kicking this whole thing off Um, he has the first record ever on your label industrial strength mescalinium United which you mentioned uh we have arrived yeah which great is record. I just still love that record. an amazing record I hear people playing it all the time now totally. it's they missed it it's back blistering then. there's nothing like it the first time you went overseas did you go to the UK first
1: yes yes that was the first because I had hits I had hits unknowing to myself <laughs> they were hits I didn't know and I mean I'm a kid from Sheepshead Bay London <laughs> I didn't really know anything about London or anything. I said, okay, I really want to go. I see some stuff going on. And, you know, the guys... I went the second trip after the first guys went. And when the guys that were looking after me went... I couldn't believe what they were telling me. I was like, yeah, but it happened in England. Man, I played Hell to Skelter, Energy, Richard Richard Branson's Club in Heaven. Uh, I mean... Stuff with the Prodigy was a big love. All, every party. I even did the first raves in Scotland, the first raves in the North, the first raves in the South. I went on the first actual electronic music tour. And that's how I met Carl Cox. And that's how I met Neil, who was producing, uh, was Guru Josh at the time. And we got on a bus. So Would who you?
0: else was on this tour with you? Who were the artists on the
1: tour? Carl Cox, me. Guru Josh, and the sound engineer was Neil McClellan, who later went on to do the last three or four Prodigy albums, Lenny Kravitz. He's he's amazing. He lives in New York now, and uh, that's how I met Carl and him. And then we all became buds. Then Neil started engineering Carl's stuff, uh, Sasha Ndigui, I mean, just just name it. He's, cause he's done so many electronic things. So we all kind of came up together as buddies. So from that tour, that was it. Carl and me, we were, I was staying at his house all the time or we we're making records or whatever the hell we can do, and DJing. So it was that beginning, you know, we all felt a bit of camaraderie together. So I think that that's what really, really pushed it forward. You know, it was in here, you know, it wasn't DJs out there. So you had a had to do a lot of things. I can't, rem- I can't imagine I did them all, actually. <laughs> it's pretty funny.
0: So when was the first time that you went uh, over to mainland Europe? To, like, to Germany? Did you go to Germany next? Holland. To Holland. next.
1: Holland was the first. I played at the Roxy for Eddie the Clerk. And that kicked it uh, for me. I realized, I said, wow, what's going on in England? I mean, I'm really playing Belgium music a- anyway really I started to get to that point but yeah Holland was the first that gave me a big kick that's when just as long as I got you got covered by a band 101 and then resurfaced as a cover and was like number one in Holland
0: <laughs> are like, these the same people that covered rock to the beat which was the Kevin Saunderson yeah track yeah And then made it at the zero, newbie hit?
1: They made just as long as I do. They recovered the the lyrics, replayed it. They licensed it. We got our, you know, it was all legit. And I was shocked that you would cover a (laughs) sample-based record. Hey, I wasn't arguing, to be honest. I was like, to me, with the records at that time, one more on the fire. I was making, just to give you an example, when I started, not too many, but in the second year, I'd say two to three records every month. And I'm not talking a single. I'm talking two, three, four records. Every record I, I tracks on the record. Sometimes they were like 12, you know, we and I was working on different people's music. So I, it, it was just like the my production output was very high. It was very high because I'm hyperactive and a overachiever, <laughs> which I've been told.
0: So how did it come to be that you met Mark Icardi-Pane, who goes by a million different aliases. The Mover, he's got Ace the Space. I mean, if you look on his Discogs, you will see he has about 50 different aliases that were all very... I did a lot of aliases
1: too. Like a lot. DJ Unknown, who's now a DJ. Well, if he looks at the record, he'll be a little shocked at the date. But, you know, I used to do a lot of things. Night Phantom, I was making a lot of records with Casper Pound. So we did like uh, the girl uh, that we did Dominitrix, it, it was just so many names. I can't even remember them all. You know what we do sometimes? I put the different name on the on the producer. Because what was happening is we were making so fucking much, we were just thinking, hey, man, who the fuck cares? There's no internet. <laughs> if I put it on there and just get it out and just put Frankie Bones edit or Lenny D this. or. But we were making all the tracks with Tommy Musto. So at that time, my engineering wasn't fully prepared to deal with making full records. The analog sequencers, I, I, it was just too too heavy on that point. And he was into it. And then I really took it to the next level when I got a computer. That's where I started making my own music. The, the analog sequencers, if you weren't a musician, it was you had to work the whole composition out in your head and then program each section. And we, we didn't do that. We just made the loops, printed to tape. If there was a section, we'd do it, print it to tape, take it out, print it and then do the mixes live with the tape and whatever sample space we had left, which at that time would have been four bit and maybe a minute and a half of sampling. I built a technique to get that to the max. I I don't know anyone else that did this, but I I realized that, man, we're never going to get what we want in here. (laughs) So I used to take the record a few beats before, and he says, you ready to record? He hit record, and I go, boo! We'd stop it, we cut it, cut it, cut it, and slow it down, so then all of a sudden I got the little piece in, then I would do the same thing for the next record, and then I had to painstakingly get that on beat, <laughs> which was a freaking nightmare, but we did it, and that's how we do. it. That's why I say there wasn't so many producers. You, The gear, there wasn't a scene for this. was Nobody was making money out of it in the very, very beginning. It was still underground. And most of my friends that were doing electronic music or synths, they were making it like a musician. I was making it like a, a freaking DJ. That was the the difference. Like You know, Derek May and all those guys had great techno, but they're coming from that Detroit sound, the more musician-y, and we were coming from, uh, we're sampling records and going nuts. We don't even care. We have all that stuff too, but our, our thing with Frankie and me, it's when I did the Fallout, the first record, I, it was... More synth bass. That was a big record for me. It was one of the best. It's on Grand Theft Auto. Uh, it's on Defected Now. I mean, it, it was a monster record. It was it's by surprise, basically. And that became one of the first Deep House records. I think Mr. Lee came out, and then this record came out like a month after. So I was saying, wow, we're feeling the same vibe. And yeah, that was the fir- like the first two... Deep house now. Deep house has changed, but yeah. So I, it was just a come. Yeah, a lot of stuff, man.
0: Do you wow, think a that?
1: Good
0: <laughs> do you think that um, the more sample based approach came from the fact that you, or partially because you were in New York and you were here, a lot of sample based stuff was going on at that time. I mean, all the early hip hop stuff, that you know, Planet Rock and all that stuff that we talked about. Did you have that approach? Was that a more New York? approach to you well well we did it
1: for a couple of reasons right back then you wanted a drum loop you gotta hire a drummer <laughs> you gotta record the freaking drummer you wanted a vocal same process you wanted to write a song y- you know it wasn't like now you actually had to produce the record and you know it, it, it that that was a, a really big point so i said man we need this texture from that groove we wanted this from that you know So what I used to do... Oh, man, this is fucking insane. I used to find the one note, like in Kraftwerk, I found a piece after I don't know how many times, and then I would replay it. And I'll be honest with you, it sounded different, but it didn't sound different. It was, you know, so we were really creative with the sampling past a certain point because you couldn't just loop things and you had to put things in key... You had to get the, the shuffs in the you know, tempo-based, so you had to kind of nudge it a lot, and then everything was on tape. So it was kind of like like I approach things now. If it don't sound great, there's <laughs> no fixing it in the mix. It That track, if you turned on my old tracks, or even my new ones, you put everything to zero, and it sounds perfect. The vocals are perfect. Okay, there may be no reverb or no this, but but it's perfect like now a lot of the guys have so many tracks so many things and i've worked with younger guys uh when i was doing like beyonce and some other projects like uh that we were working on some what is it uh k-pop and things like that the way they worked oh my god i mean days on a snare loop and i'm like man we didn't even finish the arrangement why aren't we stuck here, and he's like, oh, you could fix this later. I was like, no, I can't. Let's just get it right. This way, when I'm doing the mix, we're not sitting there changing this, the bass lines. And so, yeah, we were changing bass lines, and then the tuning, then the... Ki- I, I, You know, they were working in a way, but it taught me a lot. It says, okay, I gotta get ready for these young guys if I'm gonna engineer. But it's really the same. You listen to any, like, Pharrell or any of those records, and I've heard a lot of them, you know, right before they were mixed, in. and I gotta tell you, that shit sounds exactly the same as what you're hearing, just fine-tuned. And, yeah, if you can imagine taking something to 120% from 100, it's a lot harder than it seems, really. But, yeah, I, I have that philosophy and all this stuff.
0: I want to just jump forward again to Mark and the hardcore stuff. But, uh, but, whole, but can you tell me very quickly, quickly what gear was in the studio with you when you were making records like the looney tunes records with frankie bones or like english muffin or some of these early
1: tracks you made what would what would the gear have been english muffin is after and frankie was before okay we had a tascam 8 track forgot the analog console wasn't an amec it was scorpion no that would have been it i'm not sure i don't remember the console it was something that tommy loved A D50, which is the first linear synth uh, from Roland, which was kind of one of the, right after the the DX7. And it had a different technology. We also had a DX7. Juno 106, Juno 60, Casio 101, uh, another couple of Casio things like the bigger one. 808, 909, 505, 707, like all of those little boxes, except for the 303. I don't know why I never got one of those the sh101 and the samplers were, were like the first Akai kai samplers but that after a point when the s950 or excuse me the next s900 or whatever came out slightly before that that's when it really kicked off i had the memory i had all the stuff so those were the main pieces of gear then later i got a jupiter six and yeah, it was like I had a profit like because I saw – I know what John Roby used to use. So <laughs> that was a no-brainer for me. I had to get that. Um, and so, yeah, it was just a build of time because like in a DAW, everything has a texture. So all of these things, you hear all these names and say, oh, you know, they don't sound like this. But the texture and the way to program them, they just – yeah, you had to get one thing at a time unless you had the cash. So that that's what we were using. And we used this to make uh, – uh, the 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 uh, fallout. I had a eight track tape machine, with six tracks working on the mixer. The other two were screwed. I had to reprogram all the drums on one track or two tracks, and then we had the bass line, and then the Casio was was the Casio bass line, and then the D fifty to create those strings, which nobody really used. It was a brand new synth at the time, so we kind of were keeping up with whatever was going on as best we could because, of you know, the money, the shit was like $2,000. You know, now you can get it for 40 bucks probably. But, you know, so, yeah, those were really the the main, main sense. But it was just the way we had to do them, recording everything. So when it went to tape, if it sounded like crap, it didn't go to tape. We had to make sure. So because we were mixing everything live, <laughs> no automation, we didn't have that unless you were in an SSL, which we could not afford or a Neve or something like that. And I used to do everything live. Record this, like, okay, this is the intro. Tommy's on one end. I'm on the other end. And we're counting, looking, making the parts, stop. It goes to tape. Now we had to reset everything, make the next part. And Pray to God that we thought about how every section was going to go. So it was a combination of tape and all those gears. And MIDI <laughs> had just come to its own. It was uh, three pin, and only two would really work until the companies figured out how to get the pitch bend and how to get some of the other main things in the synth to work. So it was like really the the start where MIDI was now no more syncing, no more tape. We can we can just go back and then just record to tape, which was a quarter inch or half inch uh, tape, and then. After that, when the samplers and everything else came, I was like, goodbye. Never want to see you. Oh, here's a brand new digital audio tape machine. Yeah, man, I can't believe when that came out. The joy that I felt in everyone in the music business was like, thank God for that. So we can record, we can mix, automation. And my first computer was a Atari. That's when I left everything behind because now I could sequence I can record everything to that. I could still edit because I had the tape machines. And by then I was like a, I guess you can call it like a master editor. I could edit anything, any tape machine, anything. I used to edit every single time for author. So I had to become really proficient in it. And like I had some kids that were at my studio wanting to be interns. And I says, okay, do you know how to edit? And they're like, well, yeah, you do this and this. I said, no. I says, I'm going to give you a project. I want you to learn how to do it if you can't do that, you can't do the rest because it's about how you compose everything. So you really need to know how to take things in and out of a mix. And it's kind of like editing too. So you build your arrangements and stuff.
0: Okay, we're Crazy, almost at yeah. the halfway point. <laughs> okay, so we oh got to no. get into the, the
1: hardcore man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how I Met Arco- Marco Pain is a very interesting story. Actually, by accident, completely due to other people not picking me up in the airport. It was supposed to be uh, Mark Spoon from Jam and Spoon. And then there was Renat from RNS. Renat was stuck in Belgium. He couldn't get down to get me. Where were you? I was in Frankfurt Airport with Neil coming from another party completely like I should have been sleeping. And we're stuck in the airport. My friend, he's English. He's like, oh man, we're in the Germans over here, man. I said, yeah, I don't know what's going on. I says, no one's picking us up. And then I... Got on a payphone, called up uh, Belgium, and he's like, "Look, Mark, miss um, Spoon's not coming." Blah, blah, blah He goes, "I got this other guy who has a, a shop, uh, Michael, and he works with these guys there. You know, whatever. But they'll pick you up and they'll bring you to the Dorian Gray, and then from there we'll go to this other club." And I said, "Okay." Well, so the Dorian
0: you- Gray was an is a nightclub. And Dorian, it was a nightclub. No,
1: Dorian Gray was the techno club. You mentioned EBM, all that. That's where it was. Nowhere else. That is the exact room. It was there for, I don't know, and what makes it really super cool, it was directly inside the terminals of Frankfurt Airport. (laughs) You'd go to the parking, and you'd see this door with the bolts, which I didn't copy. It was just a... That's what it was, the representation of it. So when I went in there, that was it. That's where it kicked. My friend had a record shop in the club, which was in the airport. And he's telling me, oh, I got this guy Mark and some friends. And he goes, you know, look, I got you here. He didn't know shit about me, and I didn't know shit about them. And he's like, well, why don't you make yourself useful and maybe play some records while I try to sell something, and I don't really sell much in here. I said, okay, I'll play some records. Man. I played every record in his shop. There was a line from that little shop to the edge of the dance floor. This kid was selling and selling, and he's looking at me, DJ, the owner of the club. Couldn't understand why there was a line trying to get in this shop that was more or less empty 90% of the time, you know, because nobody at that time was going to buy a record at a club. He was a little bit uncomfortable, and, you know, you'd buy candy or whatever he had else in there. And he had one of the first skateboard shops. He had a big shop in Frankfurt, so he was like the culture. Mark was the music. Thorsten was the distribution. So I didn't really know that at that particular moment. But the guy who from Dorian Ray came in, and he's like, what are you doing? Why are all these people dancing in the freaking shop? And he's talking in German, and I'm like, and then he says, I'm going to book you here. Don't worry. And he had DJ Dax, uh, Sven Vaith was in there, um, Tala XL. I mean, all these kind of names, that's where you were DJing if you had anything going on. So then I met Mark through that accident of meeting Michael, and I was DJing in this underground club with Sven Vath, Mark Spoon, and Casper Pound. I think that was the lineup. Definitely Casper, definitely Sven. Not sure about Spoon, but I, I think he was there. It was this broken down house, got a roof. It was all fucked up in a way. Turntables, everything there. And that said, I blew them out the roof. I had all the records from the shop. The guy gave me, he goes, take them. I said, I'll buy them, he goes, Take them. (laughs) He goes, what you did in here, you deserve every one of those. He goes, I don't care. Just take it. So I went into the club with my records that I had from England, which were pretty banging as well, and I just combined it. And that's when I met Sven, all the guys, and that's when I met Marco Cotterpane. And they were kind of blown away by it. And he says, oh, so we just had a conversation, and then I got booked via them in a small party, and that's when I heard Mescaline United for the first time I brought Neil with me and if you want me to show you a description of what what happened this girl comes to me and she says here's a drink it's a fruit drink so me and Neil grab the fruit drink I'm just about the DJ we fucking drink these things we're ready to go I said man that was great why don't we get more of those Neil's like yeah that was fucking amazing man that was such a good blend of the alcohol she comes back and she says um where the drinks I said well we drank them. we need to get more She says, you drank the whole thing? I says, yeah, I drank the whole thing. She says, man, I put 100 ecstasies in a bowl, and every one of these has like 10. And I looked at her, I says, and you didn't think about fucking telling me that you put fucking 10 ecstasies in? I got a freaking blood. Wow, what a freaking disaster that was. But I met Mark, totally tripping out, and he was fucked up too. Everybody was fucked up from that. And I went in his little room, and he goes, oh, man, I want to let you hear something. And I had this record, which was kind of hard, but I was still finding what I really wanted, but he nailed it. I heard that record. i ne- never forget this. Neil's sitting there totally fucked up, and he just falls back on a pile of dirty clothes, and then Mark stops. He goes, is he dead? I said, I fucking hope not, motherfucker, because we're going to have a lot of trouble. I would go. Ah, he's breathing. He's all right. He usually gets passed out anyway, but this was bad. You know, we were we went back to England like... It was really bad, but I heard Mescalinium United. I heard his whole album, and at that time, I guess he was... Like all of us, you know, we were didn't have a lot of money. We were trying to get our music out. Nobody would listen. And I said, okay, look, I'll license it. I'll I'll give you whatever. I was DJing every weekend. I said, this is the start. I had Homeboy, Hippie, and a Funky Dread which was supposed to be the first. Then I had another record I did with Neil McClellan and Eric Kappa of all people. And then I found Mescalini Minas. I said, that's the first. This is the second. Then I did stuff with Casper Pound. And then, because I was, knew all the guys, because I was, you know, there was only a few of us that were really into the, the crack in music, but the people loved it. So that's when the hardcore For me, really, the getting harder and harder and harder and harder. I just took it to the max until we got the DOA, the Speed core, all that stuff. Now I'm in reverse. (laughs) But that's how how we met. It's really crazy, actually. And then I became their DJ because those guys at the time... Yeah, we better musicians, and I said, you know, and they seen me play. I was like, they gave me the PCP jacket, and they said, you're part of us. I said, damn right. I was wearing a T-shirt. You fuck with Frankfurt, you fuck with Brooklyn, and that's what I played Mescaline United in front of in Mayday. So we had this little bravado. We, you know, we were the underdogs, and we loved it.
0: <laughs> so you're playing in Europe. And UK at these raves for tens of thousands of people, fifty thousand people. These giant, these yeah. giant parties, and you're playing, which this. were all
1: illegal, by the way. Right, that's crazy. Thing. Yeah, the police didn't know what was going on. They had no idea. So those first few years in Europe, and you know, in Germany, wall felt. And when that wall came down, nobody gave a fuck. <laughs> you could fucking make a party in the street, and oh, that's right, Love Parade. Party in the street. Love parade started the first, within the first year of or so after that wall fell. Then they had May Day, was a small one because they made the Love parade. Then I think it was May Day 2, which was the big one. They got the investment, they found a big location, and that's where it just sparked. That was a really, for me, was a great party. 10,000, 20,000. England was, whew. More, you know, it was like way more. By the time that was happening, England was already kicking it off, and the police were still against it, but it moved into legal venues, you know, because the clubs were like, "Hey, man, I want a piece of that." Just like in New York, the Limelight, it was they wanted a piece of it. So if you were doing a rave in New York, ninety percent of the time, you kind of know who who called the police to shut it down. All you had to do was pick the five clubs. And no, it was every one of these guys. I did a party in Queens. They shut it down because they were afraid that I was going to take their business. Well, I mean, I was their DJ. They didn't want to have me anymore. So, yeah, I was taking their business. So at the end, they just used the police as the weapon. And uh, that's how that went.
0: (laughs) So you're playing these huge parties overseas and you have a big name over there as Lenny D, Mm. um, which is kind of. So different than what
1: you had been doing here in New York. Oh, yeah. Well, we were um, doing parties. Frankie and I were doing... There were a lot of parties in America.
0: Okay, yeah. yeah, like Just talk to me a little bit about what it was like to go over there and start developing this hardcore sound and then constantly coming back to New York and what, was, what you were doing here, what was going on here.
1: The day I came back here and said, I don't give a fuck, that's when I started getting bookings. When I was hungry for it, I'd get the shit on the back of the shoe. And I said, you know something? Whether you know it or not, this is before DJ Meg, I am the number one DJ in the world. There was nobody playing in France, Belgium, Holland, America, LA, Canada, not even Carl Cox, none of the guys, because they were all really local and they had a scene. I didn't have a scene. So what started happening... I started going everywhere. I was the first DJ to play in Russia, from America, the first. It was only me and West Bam that went there. Nobody had balls to go there. Then it was the first in Japan. Nobody even knew what the hell, you know what I mean? So it was like a, it was like a power for me. I just came back to New York, and I was like, yeah, that and $1. fifty will get me on the train. You know something? Fuck these people. And then all of a sudden, I started becoming so popular over there, they had no choice to book me. They had none, none whatsoever. And, you know, I went through a lot of shit in New York, but we used to make our own parties. That was the savior. We knew there was a a market and there was people. Then in L.A., it was really, really kicked off. Then I went out to California. You know, everybody looks at EDC, but Pascal, who makes EDC, didn't start out with EDC. He started out... Doing parties in L.A. I was did an industrial strength room, you know. We all came up, you know. So anyone that you see that's now, that came from then, they really worked hard. It's not like they stepped in shit, you know. They were in the trenches. Even me, you know, when we came here, Giuliani, no dancing, no water. Great, so you're denying a human being water. Boy, that makes fucking sense to me really I don't even think you can hold that up in court you know he's a traitor and a criminal now so that kind of tells you where he was at so yeah we we made the parties the guys I mean I played in Texas Philadelphia Pennsylvania LA fuck man almost every state that would have it you know then you know it was the techno guys in St. Louis and and you know I've never played in Detroit that's the only you know bucket list thing that I haven't done and I think the day they do that is going to be the day they're going to hate my music even more. <laughs> but yeah, I really want to play there. That's so if you hear me book me or don't. <laughs> but New York was a was still a melting pot, you know? The police didn't know where everything is. They didn't even know what ecstasy was. So they, they didn't know. They, so the only thing that they knew was just Giuliani said you got to close these parties down. And that's was the battle making a party and what you watch getting your records ready, because when the cops come, I'm out of there, man. I ain't getting arrested for this. I, was, I don't know how many sound systems got f- thrown in the garbage by the police because everybody just had to run, you know? It was a lot of things like that, too. But we used to make the parties, parties in the Bronx, parties in Staten Island, parties in the park. We're, same thing. We used to generate you know, just fucking put it in and just go. And so there was a lot here, but it, it wasn't like Europe. Europe was really coming to its own. They loved the music. We had hip hop, they had electronic music. And I said to all of them, I says, the day that hip hop comes to these countries, it will be the end of the best parts of this music. And I was fucking right, totally. Changed the crowds, people started doing this. Promoters started getting kind of greedy and said, oh, well, I'm not gonna have one room with all the best guys. I'm going to have Lenny in this hardcore room that we never did. I'm going to have Carl Cox in this room. I'm going to have a trance room. So, when this started... I mean, it's crazy. It all started to get separated. And this is the worst thing that ever happened to music, for electronic music. When I'm playing after Sven, Carl Cox, this one, that one, you're getting like what you get now, right? A lot of Americans, you, play, you can hear you, and then you can hear another person. You can play fucking rock record. You can do this kind of, And so, it was kind of like that. So... People were getting an immense amount of music without a DJ worrying about another DJ. So you got the best of that person. And then they started segueing all the stuff. Then it started getting poppy. So it evolved. But it, still, it was still kicking. You know, I, I, I could, you can't complain about it. But I saw that change and that change was alarming to me for sure. So you're that...
0: talking about the evolution of the programming in Raves where yeah, it used to be so yeah, you know, I come I came from playing drum and bass first yeah. and jungle. And so like yeah, one time I played after Paul Johnson mm. and before Tracks in Chicago, which like nowadays you would never have a never. jungle DJ sandwiched in between two Chicago house DJs, like it just wouldn't happen. And mm. we all used to be kind of in the same room, like a trance DJ, then a house DJ, then a jungle DJ. Then I a played with hardcore all the jungle DJ. Guys. all of them. And then and now, what you're talking about is the siloing of yes. the raves or the clubs into like this is the trance room, this is the house room, yeah. this is and you don't meet. Like, people aren't as open-minded, I feel like. Oh, no,
1: what happened is started to, you know, what the promoters did, they conquer and divide. First off, they all hated the music from the hardcore. They hated it. They were just looking for something else to replace it, and nothing was replacing it. And the trance came along, and then they separated me in there. They gave a shit sound system, and they put everything over there where I used to be, and now I'm in here, even Sven, this, that. You know, so it, it changed. Man, I used to play sets with Fabio, Groove Rider, Slipman. I mean, all of those guys are my buddies. We used to play. He used to play before me. I used to play in Groove Rider. I used to play at Heaven. Then it was be a techno guy, a drum and bass guy, Paul Oakenfield. Yeah, it was, that was the best time because, you know, I just play my thing and he would play his thing and we'd all be drinking in the backstage going freaking crazy because it was all the same music to me. Drum and bass, jungle, it was like an evolution. So it wasn't far-fetched to do that until the separation. I think that came when I started going to Munich. So that had to be maybe a couple of years, a year or so, a couple of years after the, the May Day. That's when it changed. He, the guy, Rene, he was doing parties in the airport. He would rent the freaking, the old terminals that the the new airport was built in Munich. And then they had the old thing. So he used to rent that thing out and fill it. And I guess, you know, because you have this big space, they kind of had to do it. But they really didn't. It's just what, because the older parties was only one room and you'd get an ambient room just so if you had a big problem you you can go in there really it was only it was the escape room basically that's what i used to call i used to walk in there and go wow look at all these fucked up people (laughs) you know
0: so you mentioned that even at mayday which was in the very early 90s you and and mark already felt like you were the underdogs or you were fighting you know, you were the, the, yeah, the underdog music, or it was a fight. Like, I don't know, even know how to phrase this question, but why do you feel like hardcore as often the underdog music?
1: Uh, between me and the best hardcore guys, we have a little joke. Hardcore is the shit stain of electronic music. The guy's playing in front of 40,000 people. They don't make as much money as anybody else. The music is super challenging, and you cannot get behind it. The records are twice as fast as anything else. The DJs have to be really on point. They have to make... Man, I see some of these techno guys making their one big track of the year, and I'm like, dude, these guys make 50. Are you kidding me? So it's a kind of music that is based around... I don't know, bass drums now. I'm not 100% happy with the, the newest music, but at the end of the day, it was a shit fight. Yeah, we still fight now. We're just like, you know, look at Angle Fist. He's on the top 30, man. He's hardcore. Whoa, whoa, wow. But he ain't making the numbers if you were on the top 30 doing house music or techno music, you know? So we're still the underdogs in a, in a lot of ways, but if you go to Holland and you see all those people, make you think. You think, okay, you know, maybe this isn't the shit stain, but you know, we're all treated the same. It, it's only changed a bit because we make more money, there's more marketing, there's more promotion, and unfortunately, the newer guys, they get ghost producers, like, that was a big no-no when I came up, and it still is a no-no, but, you know, it's like all the other music, like the Italian music, you would see all these Italian DJs, and they didn't really make the music back then, so... It was the beginning of that back then. But now with the hardcore, it's about your image. It's about this. They don't even make so many records. And, you know, I kind of feel disheartened by that because hardcore is, and I'm not mentioning any names. Everybody works really hard. So uh, I'm just saying I'm a little disappointed by that. I had to work my ass off to do it. so You know, I'm a little jealous. I don't know. Maybe if I had somebody making everything for me and I just had to play records, it might be an easier life. But. I didn't choose that way. So
0: I mean, I think that's true across dance music. It used to oh, be totally. like a DJ in a dark corner that you couldn't even see them, and yeah. you wouldn't even know one person from the next because yeah. a lot of people were just wearing a black hooded sweatshirt and a hat. Like <laughs> Shit, who? Dude, I used to. You would really have to go up to the DJ oh. and like look at them and really be like, oh, who is this? And also, you know, if you were living <laughs> in somewhere where maybe you weren't getting. All the latest dance music magazines or whatever. Fanzines. They you, weren't wouldn't, magazines. you wouldn't even magazine well, I might have to ask 10 people before you figured out who the DJ was or what the record was or whatever. And that's so different than now when, you know, you can Google what everybody looks like. There's, such, there's so, so much emphasis on image and press mm. photos. and The, the first magazine
1: was frontline. That was the magazine that made everybody else realize. We had Under One Sky with Heather and all those guys. You know, that was the little thing going on here. But Frontline, uh, I believe, was the, it was the one in Germany, and it was pictures, this is what's going on here, black and white, you know, nothing nothing fancy. But what it did, once it started getting more and more popular, now you have a nice cover, and all of a sudden, DJ Mag pops up, this one pops up, and then, you know, everybody had their own little thing after the fanzines because that's what it was. In, in England, man, there was no party. You go to a party, here's how it worked. <laughs> you have to know about it. Once you know about it, you have to go find where to buy this ticket or it was only at the door. Then you'd have to wait on the night and then you would have to listen to a pirate radio to tell you where it was She <laughs> you didn't have a cell phone. There was no way to text anybody. And then you would go to this point and someone would then give you another map to go to some place. Sometimes it was three instead of just going to one. If you were DJing, they would tell you exactly where it was because obviously time you had to could not know where to go. So, but even that was okay. We just telling everybody now it's seven o'clock at night. This is where you got to go. Come and that's it. And then we just used to go. So there was (laughs) a lot of crazy shit going on. I'll tell you in the beginning.
0: Yeah, there was a lot of adventure and mystery back in those days. Yeah,
1: misbehavior as well.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, so you mentioned before that you were sort of crafting the sound that you didn't even know yet would be hardcore, and then yeah. Renat said, hey, man, you're playing this hardcore music. Yeah. But, you, but but the hardcore, <laughs> hardcore didn't exist as a genre yet, and you were, no. in a sense, making it out of all of these things that you were either producing or hearing in other people's records that you decided to play
1: together. The the UK coined hardcore for something else. But let me tell you, I was like, no way. (laughs) So they had breakbeat hardcore. Yeah, they used to call it hardcore. Which is like... I used to play that too. You know what I mean? It wasn't Prodigy. Yeah, that wasn't out of my realm. It was almost like drum and bass with a kick drum. (laughs) Yeah, pre-jungle. Pre-jungle. And then it went total jungle. They got rid of the kicks and it was, that's when I left the UK. I realized that things have changed so much now and I can't go down that route because I already was on the continent and I already knew that Europe was on a mission that I was on. It it felt like a growth. Like I I did a lot of the breaks and I just felt for myself, eh, drum and bass, I love it. I fucking love it. But as far as DJing, I had this other mission. I kind of like already made breaks and things like that, which influenced all those guys in a lot of big ways. And I still get a lot of respect from them, you know, the older guys anyway. So my evolution was I wanted to take that kick drum <laughs> to the next level. You know, I come from 4-4 and the breaks before 4 And I was even playing jungle tracks. I got a shitload of them, you know, some of that stuff. And, you know, it was just part of it. And then as I went to Europe, the breaks kind of t- t- stopped Cause in Europe they you know TikTok TikTok it wasn't wasn't as soulful didn't have a, that kind of thing where the UK had that culture behind it they had the reggae you know there was a big multi uh, scene with different people different ethnic's and stuff where Europe you know you're in Germany there's a bunch of Germans there's no this and it's not like in London where you got different you know like England was more of a melting pot because it was first so it got a lot of people from the cities the inner cities different places that you just like where is that i don't even know where that is so yeah it was that was really the difference and i kind of got attracted to that rave music and i was playing already that but the rave music started to become t99 uh dance opera records rns records so that which I already made some records on R&S around that, actually right around that time. So yeah, I just went into Belgium, Holland. Fr- then I got to France. That was it. I was the first guy ever to play that music. And it pioneered France. I mean, Manuel Malin, everything came from those sets in France. So I was really happy that I'm really, like, one of the first ones through the door. I'm not saying, okay, I did this, I did that, well, whatever. A lot of people did a lot of things. But I was definitely one of those first. I didn't know, you know, people say, oh, no, you were and I was like, yeah, how old are you? How do you know? Was that what the book tells you? Because the book didn't talk to me, and I didn't see the guy who wrote the book when we were partying. So, mm, I don't know if you really understand, or he understands what is going on. So, a lot of the early books, I didn't agree with some of them. They... They just didn't get it, because they weren't there. You know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of the 60s. Woodstock. Shit like that. That's what it kind of was like, just with 90s fashion, which wasn't so good. And, you know, the 90s are poorly doc. You know, there's no—you just got to think, right? Okay, I had a cell phone. It was about that big, okay? Do you know how big the freaking video cameras were? Shoulder size, with a VHS tape or a beta tape— nobody had that. Nobody. Nobody was even thinking because everybody's doing drugs, everyone's partying, it's underground. If you had a camera, you had a real camera. So, none of those parties are, you can never see it. It's all in my brain. That's when I came up with Forgotten Moments because it was like all those things that are just forgotten and then they're only in my brain basically and just like with some of the other guys, you can, can't even explain it really. It wasn't that there was millions of people, it was just so rebellious to do that music, and it was even a rebellion against house music, because after a while, that was the mainstream to me. Loved it, didn't disrespect it, but I felt that this was, I'm going for it, you know? I'm not going to chase Todd Terry. I'm not going to chase this one. I was equal with them, and now I want to do this, and I and I still do that. If I want to make a pop record, I'll do it. I, I just don't care. You know, it's just me. It kind of keeps me Rolling, So I, by the time I got to that stage, yeah, it was all over. I was really gaining it, like everywhere. Even the other DJs. I had the first DJ itinerary, like Carl Cox's manager and his wife at the time. She's like, oh, let me see this. You and Jennifer, what are you doing? We had a <laughs> was it a word thing, you know, not even on a computer. So it was like Xerox. And, you know, this is like I kind of set a way to keep doing this all over the world. And, you know, this wasn't like, you know, fax me. Here's my number. Call me from industrial strength. Hey, I'm flying over to this country like Nazenbluten. I went to Australia. I heard I bought a record in the shop. It was them. Found that I was DJing with them that night. Signed them immediately. Went to New Zealand. Found the guys from New Zealand. Went to Germany. Found the guys from Germany. I went all over the world to bring it to industrial strength. And I was one of the only ones who getting all over the world. So I had a bit of an edge and the people would find me. That was the difference. We'd come, we'd meet. That was social media. You go, you see, you talk, you humanize with somebody, you release their art, and yeah, just do it. Win or lose, I would just do it. And that's why I think Industrial Strength, you know, Mark had his records out definitely a little bit before. But I think with Industrial Strength, it's the really – the first international i got it from everywhere like mark did his music at the time the rotterdam guys were doing their music at the time i was releasing everybody's music cuz i felt it's a worldwide thing and why should one sound dominate anything when there's so much you know out there And I got really hardcore. The Europeans stopped uh, at some point, you know, I just kept going. Like it was almost metal at that time. You know I mean? We stopped going faster and faster and harder and fucking taking samples. But before that it was, yeah, it was like I had to, I had to find it or it had to find me. And, I'm so proud that I did all that work. I used to go, okay, I wanna see this guy. Hey, hello, where is he? Let's go here. Let's go to this. Tell him call him up. Tell him to meet me at the shop. I heard this this cassette that he sent me or whatever. And I said, I gotta meet him. And that's how we used to do it. You know what I mean? Like even the guys from DOA, they sent me a cassette. And if you hear the first cassette, you'd be like, uh what the fuck is that? You know? But I heard the programming, I heard the musicianship, I heard the aggression. And then I sold him some of my gear. I said, "Look, check out this. Check out this." And then the next thing I you know, I got a D- DOA album. I was like, oh, "Okay, uh, that was pretty quick." I said, "You only had this?" She goes, "Man, this is all I needed." He goes, Are "You kidding me? That was what, what I got from you was that was it? That's the fucking hardcore sound." I said, "Yeah, kind of is." So I and you know that's how it all kind of meshed in some way. So I think yeah, and you know we're the longest running one of the longest running record labels in the united states i could safely say not even ultra none of them i've been there since 90 fucking one and we stores aren't shut detroit guys closed this label thinks it's active but it only releases one record every fuck knows when so I'm pretty proud of that. I mean, maybe not the first, but for our music, uh, I think in electronic music, you know, those Detroit guys, all that, but our music, we were the first and we're still now trucking it. You know, I got techno labels, I had experimental labels, we distribute other people. So, you you know, I I kind of feel we're, we're really relevant and, and in different ways now. So, and I really, I'm proud that I have all those guys and got them the chance to be who they were when nobody would do it. So I think it was it was equal, you know. I needed them; they needed me, and we just did it. It was like no thinking.
0: So, what you guys kind of make hardcore out of these other styles and out of your mind? What year do you feel like hardcore was a, became an actual thing? Like everybody in rave scenes around the world knew what it was, and then when did it start splintering mm-hmm. into?
1: all of these different niches. Well, it was techno. They may, I, I make no doubt about it. It was what... Te- see, here's the thing. The techno DJs, they think they're playing techno, but they're freaking not. <laughs> it's just, it evolved into whatever they're doing, but that was never what techno was about. It was also about pushing barriers in any way possible, using things that you pretty much only had a certain amount of things. So... Yeah, it started to split. Look, after Mesculum United, it kicked. That was it. After that record, then the Rotterdam guys had uh, the Euromasters, which sampled. And, you know, they say, oh, yeah, this was the first record. I said, well, then how did you sample that before that? So... Keep that in mind. And they all hate that when they tell them that. But at the end, it's the truth. So they took it to another level. They took the speed, they took a bit more aggression, even though the words, if you translate it, it's kind of I wanna dance and shit like that. It just sounds stronger in Dutch. You know, obviously it's a powerful language. So it kind of started right after that, like within months, like, you know, the Rotterdam guys came out, they heard that record. Everybody was playing rave music, which you can even say it was kind of hardcore music and techno. It was kind of almost all the same. Like even Jeff Mills, you know, he's playing his Detroit sound, but then the next guy after him is playing like totally rave music, which was still techno music, because it, it was all fucking techno music. Then it started to splinter, like the hardcore became this, house was that. Like it was all around that time. It was literally when the the year or the year after it's when it started to really splinter because now you had house, now you had techno, now you had hardcore, now you have trance, now you have a. There was ambient already before that. There was drum and bass. So now all the food groups are coming in. So the I have to say it, fucking magazines. They were the ones that really fucked it up in my eyes because they needed shit to talk about. So oh, you're in this year. I need to sell magazines. He's in this year it was like the beginning of oh you want to have your face on my cover when they were just putting them on before because they were desperate to have any information on this music. So the magazines helped it. They said oh this DJ's doing the, the she, she Club and this one's doing House and oh Lenny D's playing at here and they kind of like you know it was the only way was the magazine you know what I mean? So they needed to do it there. It's every magazine does that. It's not like it was bad but that was the first chisel on the rock because then if you were in England, you had DJ Mag. If you were in Europe or this country, you had this or this and they only reflected from their countries and then all of a sudden it started to splinter within itself. You know what I mean? And, but don't you think the artists do this too? Because like, okay, <laughs> for example,
0: I'm, I'm not the authority on hardcore, no. right? So if I hear a Spanish hardcore record or a Japanese hardcore record or... A record from the U.S. or Nas To me, it's all hardcore. Yeah. But if you're in the scene, someone's it's, like, "Oh no, that's Terrorcore. Yeah. Oh, that's um, you know, that's machina. That's, well, look, th- that's I'll be, this.
1: I'll be honest with you, they're all full of fucking shit. If you fucking it has a kick drum and it's like that, and you make it, it's all hardcore. You know, it's like house music. Oh, it's deep house. Oh, it's a, man, it's just house music, man. You you need to call it something different." to fucking get your ass in the door. That's what happened with hardcore. Oh, it's industrial. Yeah, from industrial strength. Oh, it's terror from extreme terror. So they started naming these genres, and every year there's someone that's basically just starting out. They get into the whatever the new thing is called, but it's exactly the same as the old thing. They change something different, you know. Sort of like all the music, right? Drum and bass, jungle, jump up. It's like, I would say what you would say. Oh, it sounds like drum and bass to me. I don't know the style of this, but I just think it's all... Same thing. It keeps my head better because it lets me buy records that I think are hard and not what let's say Germany or France or you know, they all have their vibe, and I I like everything, so I'm never really dictated by the the sub-styles. Like this up tempo now. What the fuck is that? You know what I mean? Up tempo. (laughs) That was up tempo for me in the freaking 95. What are you talking about? You call it this, and it's just cheesy riffs, bit more, all based around a bass drum. But that's hardcore, too. So I don't even, my friends, oh, it's not like, I said, well, it's not like what you were doing. This is a young kid perspective. You got to respect it. So what do I do? I modify it to me. I slow it down. I'll speed it up. I'll Like I had a guy tell me, man, that set was great. Yeah, fuck that up, tempo. You really showed it. I'm sitting there like, I just played about 10 of those records in a fucking row. You don't even know what you're talking about. I slow them down so they're not bing, 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 bing. They're boom, 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 boom. You know? It leaves a different bass. So that's why I said when I play records, I don't just, oh, that's the one. Oh, that's my next one. I fuck it up. I don't even care about the mix. I don't care about shit. If I mix great, great. If I don't, don't care. It's just the overall thing. And that's what a lot of the hardcore guys and some of the other genres, they get very stuck in one thing, and you don't realize that, hey, you know, if I'm going to take this further, it's got to come from in here, and you have to take the music to another level, either producing or fucking DJing. You don't have to produce records to be a great DJ, and I know tons of great DJs, including yourself. You make music when you can, you DJ, you do this, you have a whole bunch of hats on like everybody else, and you know, you play the records after a while, and you just think, I'm a little bored of that. Hey, what's this? Or, hey, I'm going to find a record from that time and put it into this. So that's what that's what I do now. I'll find an old record, a techno record that I can get away with it, or I'll play slow, and then I have a whole other selection of tracks. So i, I, I kind of diverse with this. So I think hardcore, it's really not even the records, it's you, you know? You can play hardcore records. I hear the young guys, I'm like, really, I mean, you just going bonk. Uh, I don't do that. I don't look at anything. I throw my cell phone in the garbage if I had to. I get my fucking cigarettes and bang, no one could talk to me. If you fucking talk to me, I give you the fucking look of get the fuck away. You break my concentration. You fuck my setup. You know, and I take it really serious. So even if I'm fucked up or like fucking it up or something's wrong, I just persevere. And that's how I always did it. So I think it's from within. You know, you listen to Manu. Fuck. Man, you want to hear fucking hardcore music. It's 120 BPM. You're just sitting there like, wow, I'm getting grounded and grinded and just... And I play like that too. Like in France, they're like, the uh, girl come up to me with her boyfriend. She goes, man, what the fuck was that? The guy goes, it was a fucking relentless man, like a fucking machine gun. Yeah, I just go one after another. As soon as you think you're here in the same track, I'm already playing another one. So you're already in the other one. I mix in different locations that other guys don't do because it's very fucking difficult to just mix with hi-hats. So yeah, like Crossbreed is drum and bass and hardcore. Woo-hoo. You might like that music. It's like uh, fucking badass. I play a lot of that now because I really like drum and bass, but without the bass drums, it... it tonality, it wouldn't work for me, you know? You're gonna go from boom, boom, boom to, you know, you can, I play drum and bass. I figured out a fucking way to get it in those, into those breaks because the hardcore starts with nothing, it has a kick, and then it goes into nothing like and I mix in there which is I gotta listen to hi-hats I have to listen to other things it's quite complicated and so the drum and bass when I go into that it doesn't matter now the tone changes and when I come out of the drum and bass and it's pretty fucking banging drum and bass it's not like groovy it's just like tech step on steroids I don't know the new genre (laughs) for it I think tech step showing my age (laughs) so
0: you know we talked a lot about the 80s and the early 90s and obviously by the late 90s this thing is in full swing you've already put out a lot of records on industrial strength you've been DJing all around the world for a good long time now and you know I feel like with anyone the music really reflects what's going on in your life and where you're at in your mind so I guess by the late 90s sort of what was your approach like what were you looking for on the label I mean beyond like you said you wanted people from all over the world like where where had you pushed the music by that point in maybe the late 90s or even the early 2000s that was the
1: worst time in my entire career it's the worst time for everybody Um, that's exactly when industrial strength I had to reinvent myself and the label I had to take a break for a little bit Every record distributor on earth started to close. Every record shop started to close. The major labels put out their little uh, quarterly or yearly thing, and they said, records are 2% of our business. Fuck that. And electronic music was based on DJs playing records. So this was the introduction to CDs, which I was totally not into. Uh, The CD players weren't even... Worth trying to do anything on, especially for me. I just needed to be in control and not like fiddling with whatever that that yeah, was. Yeah, the early CDJs, were yeah, like the really dentist. Like you look at the dentist, you go, <laughs> Oh, I ain't touching that. I mean, even to this day, you say, Oh, you can, as good, you know, give me whatever, I'll play with a, a, a spoon in a cup, you know. So at the end, it was really bad for business, and what that started to do was started to people starting to fuck around, you know? You owe money, normally it's all good. So this is what happened. The hardcore in Holland and Germany and all that shit just went... It just died out because the trance, the promoters, you know, there was a big hit. And I would have to say in the millennial hardcore kind of stage, like the, that, that 2000, like right after that, that's when it started to re-kick in again and that's when, you know, Happy Hardcore just died, you know, everything got to a point, you, you know, and it was a bit much, you know, I, I get it, you know, every style, everything hits a wall and then it's the separates the men from the boys or the girls from the women, that's it, you know, you gotta, you know, I'm not a businessman, but I'm a mover, I never, ever, 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 ever had another job in my life, except for my uncle's shop, cleaning out the back room to save up for turntables. And after that, I got a job, and I've never had another job since. So I've always been figuring out ways to survive. Like now, I do Sample Pack Company. I give back to producers to make their music. I feel fucking great about it. It's supporting the label, some of the artists that can't make enough money or enough gigs. So this outlet, I feel happy about doing. We're doing really well. Jules, my partner, is doing the label. I'm doing this right now to just build up the company. You know, we did some stuff on Netflix. We have some stuff in some underground video games that are coming out. I got a couple albums. So I had to just, you know, 2000 taught me, hey, shit, man, this is getting fucking, I cannot get complacent. I got complacent, but the business got pulled out. Midtown close. I mean, everybody took the hit. And then whoever was left, that was it. And I was one of those guys. It took me a while, you know. I owed money. They owed money. I couldn't do this. I just dealt with it, it the best way I can. Not one artist is pissed off at me. Nothing is good. I got everybody that, you know, that I was getting their money, you know. And that they had to trust me to do it. It was a really big crash. It was, it was just in the early 2000s is when it And I didn't really like the music at that point. Not the hardcore, just the new stuff. I was like, oh, man, it's getting cheesy again with a different kick drum. Fuck, I don't want to do that. And I just went more underground after that.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting to me because the early part of your career, like usually people start in the underground and often like get more mainstream or overground as their career goes on. You know, they were an underground DJ and now they're making, you know, music that gets played in hotel lobbies or they're producing for some pop person or whatever. Mm. You see that with a lot of people yeah. from electronic music. Um, and your career is kind of interesting in that you went like the other way around totally where, way where around. You, you know, you were producing. I don't think I had much of a
1: choice. That was the thing, you know, there was nothing back then. Well, but- you also
0: chose to pursue this music that was underground and like ever more underground and you know, I guess I was wondering what what was in your mind? Like you were were you always searching for like the next thing? I mean, sometimes from an outsider's perspective, it feels like certain genres I mean, for me, this happened in drum and bass. I saw it kinda happen in hardcore where the people's way of pushing the music forward was just like getting faster and faster and faster and faster. Until and then at the a world. certain point, you're at 200 BPM, like, okay, you, there's not much f- faster you can go without it just sounding like a straight line. So, <laughs> I know you that. know, I, I mean, oh, I know that. I mean, yeah. the evolution, like, this has happened in a number of different genres where, like, the evolution of this style is to just get faster and faster and faster just to the point where then it's like, okay, well, now we did that.
1: Now what? This is what's happening now. What do you think? Up tempo. These guys are playing 240 BPM. The only difference, hey man, that's not hardcore music. It's fast.
0: So what I want to know because you're not like that is what how do you approach it or how do you think about what records you're going to release by people and also like what are you looking for? You basically Very hard. helped invent oh, this
1: style. Like what are you looking oh, for? Oh, I don't even know, I'll be honest with you to tell you. I, I've managed to get a couple of the great artists like Edub Blaster, Acriv, all these kind of guys that they were on their way up and I knew that they were changing the hardcore for the better. The other guys, like let's say the Holland, France, everybody has a different style. Everybody. So it's really tough. I got to tell you. And now with the way the internet and the way the thing's going, it's sort of like, the artist doesn't necessarily need the label. But I think the people really do because you curate it. You know, like I could release a freaking man a track every week. That doesn't mean they're going to be freaking great. You know what I mean? So when you made stuff on vinyl, you had to make serious decisions because it would cost you $3,000 to get that record pressed and out and mastered and blah, blah, blah. So I don't know. You know, I know when I hear it. You know, when I, I'm now looking for more original stuff, I'm working with Mario Malky on an album, which is hip hop, metal, hardcore, industrial, techno. It's fucking everything. We don't even, I told him, I said, I don't even give a shit. Do you really want to make one thing? I just make it all. And we're, we're getting bookings without any music. So I, I kind of just, yeah, I don't know what I'm looking for, but I know when I find it. And sometimes it's like nobody will understand it. And then it's a sort of like uh, the, the Netflix. Everybody hated that record that I at least, oh, yeah, it's yeah, yeah, whatever. And then all of a sudden, oh, it's on Netflix. I said, yeah, I don't know. this. I don't know. I just have a thing to find music. I don't, I don't know. I don't really never know what I'm going to look for. I love to be surprised. When I listen to it, I only hear it on my laptop. I'm like, that's it. Okay. If I can, hear, if I can get onto it on that. Then when I go in the studio to double check it, it's usually right on the point. It's either it sounds shit and I love it, or it sounds great and I love it, or it has a bit of shit, bit of quality. Bit of, I, I, don't, I don't have any set thing, to be honest.
0: Do you think that there's a link between all of the music that you like? Because a lot of people would probably be surprised oh, that yeah. Lenny D... I mean, still to this day, I saw you play at the Funhouse reunion. You were playing disco <laughs> records disco- still. Record. People would be shocked to be like, oh, you... How, do you like this disco but you also love this hardcore music like what do you think are the things in music that you just are attracted to everything everything I listen to no not a genre but like
1: music. kick drums where you always listening to the kick drum no do you never I don't think see this is the thing the new kids up tempo for example I, uh, it's not a bad style. I actually like it it's just a kick drum okay what is their musical influence the 90s Two thousand, you know, I've been listening to music since I'm freaking eight years old. I've been listening to soul, funk, hip hop. I love it all, you know. So when I hear music, I don't listen to it as. See, that's the thing. They think it's about a hawk. It's about a kick drum. (laughs) This is fucking the least fucking thing, but from the kick drum, it's just evolved that way. But listen to Masculine United that. There's no freaking, you know, it's all the feeling of the record. And when I make a record, I don't care about one sound in a composition of 50 other parts. Okay, it might be the most relevant and the most prevalent thing to push forward. And I do it, but I don't discard the rest of the song. The song is boss. I am the slave to it. It is not the slave to me. And these kids are backed up in a corner now where these things are so heavy, the musical elements of what they do, well, there isn't any. They don't even fucking put a hi hat. That's where it's at now. It's just like a. I play the tracks for a minute and a half and I play a lot of them in an hour. Fuck. Man, even the kids are like, oh, fuck. And there's no sync button. Sometimes I do the sync button. And I'm just like, bang, 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 bang. I could play a record every fucking minute and never even think about. You wouldn't even know what's going on. You just hear one kick drum, one kick drum, one kick drum, some melody, some techie, some kick drum, kick drum, back and forth. I kind of just piece it all together. So I I love everything. If I didn't, I wouldn't be around this far. No fucking way. And I see all my friends that are pinpointed in their genre, and I've learned over three decades, (laughs) what goes up will fucking come down, and that's it. It's when you come down... Is what separates you from the rest. And I've been, I have a great imagination, great creative feeling. So I just keep redoing re, re, re it and try not to get stuck that, oh, this is what I'm doing. Oh, I can't do this because they're going to think this. And oh, why don't I change my name to make house music? Fuck you. <laughs> if you don't like it, then don't listen to it. I don't care. You know, I ain't making it for anybody that doesn't want to hear it. So. That's it, you know. If I make classic, one of the best selling hardcore records ever, hey man, what do you want from me if I want to make an ambient record? Which we did, the new album has ambient textures. I made so, you know, my Delta Nine made so many beautiful textures and things, and we approached the, this whole record from a weird point of view. So I really am proud of it. What's Not, the record called? It's called Isolate. <laughs> For a couple of reasons actually. It's because we feel isolated and the fact like we're kind of teaming up with a bunch of wheat guys and the isolate it was a good name. I said, Come on, Dave. We, you know, we don't care about the weed it's not like we're selling it. He goes, I he goes, Yeah, come on, let's call it that. So it was more about isolation than anything else. So it kind of yeah, it represents that. I'll let you hear it. You know, it's kind of weird. You know, I got some people who go, oh, it sucks. And all the guys are like, what the fuck? i never heard that. I played the tracks in Boston over here in Brooklyn. I was kind of shocked. I was like, holy shit. I was with my friend Dan from Alto. And he's like, is this your tracks? He goes, what the fuck? He goes, it sounds so kicking in here. I was like, man, I never even played this outside the freaking studio. I don't even know what it's supposed to be like. Yeah, so, you know, I just take t- chances. And, and I think if you don't. You're gonna lose in the long run. If you don't, if you're into drum and bass, you don't understand about jungle. You don't understand about this, or you don't understand about what came before. It's, it could be very hard to distinguish what you think might be the thing, unless you're DJing it on the cusp. And I've been on that cusp for a really long time. Am I on that cusp now? In a different way, I'm not leading the way. Because it's the younger guy's turn, really. You know, I still make records. I still make relevant records. I still sell records. I still collab with everybody under the sun. But, you know, what else can I do except for persevere, look forward, don't get caught up. I don't believe my own hype, and I don't fall in love with my own music. And that's what I tell every kid ever, if you can abide by these two fucking things, you will be a success. How many DJs you know before they were popular and then they're fucking assholes now because they think they have the right to be an asshole. Yeah, that works when you're on top. (laughs) When you're on the bottom, this is what you get. So, yeah, I think it's really important. If I didn't like disco, I never would have made techno because all those techno riffs are all coming from those disco riffs. If I let you hear some of this stuff, you'd be like, what the fuck? The house music, comes from Soul and disco and you know so in order to make something new you might need to check out some old. You might need to check punk rock record and you think, all oh, right well that what he's doing there, I can maybe program that in this. so so you have to I think you have to I don't know if anybody else does it, but I, I do it. That's why I'm made records with Carl Cox, Sven Foth, John Selway, uh, guys from the Tramps. this and it really makes me a better producer. When I walk into a room. <laughs> if we don't get something done, I'll be quite surprised. And I, I'm a good people person. So when I interact with someone, that is the best for me. When I interact with somebody else and get another brain, another two sets of ears, another two hands, that's when I love making music because we have two ideas. We don't fight. I know when to let go, they know when to let go. We're professionals in what we do. Even though we're freaking doing whatever in the studio, it doesn't matter. I can produce a record fucking drunk if I had to. I've been doing it since I'm 17, 18, now 19, whatever. So it's kind of second nature, but I have a lot of experience. So I think that's from all the different music. And I could apply it. You know, when I go into a studio to make hardcore, I ain't bringing hardcore stuff. I'm bringing other things that we make. and We turn it into that. So it's kind of like, I think it's the best way to go.
0: What do you consider to be the best party, parties or clubs that you've been to in your whole life?
1: Definitely the May Day. Um, Helter Skelter, for sure. Energy, for sure. Big Love, for sure. Uh, Love Parade, Hate Parade, Heaven. That, to me, was really special. Sterns. (laughs) What's Sterns? Wow. Oh my god. There is videos of that. And I don't think you would even believe it. It was a it was a mansion uh in the south of England. And if you didn't know where it was, you didn't know where it was. The police knew where it was. It was a mansion converted into a monster little club. I used to DJ in the basement. Oh my god. That's when hardcore first when I was coming back to England with the Beats, you know? I was like coming back in in a totally different way like I left, then I came back even stronger, you know, cuz they they didn't I knew everybody and the fact that I was doing something completely groundbreaking at that time, it kind of got me back in. But those were some of the best clubs. Also Club Number 1, uh, I packed the club with 25,000 people. <laughs> I don't even know, Coco Rico, oh my god, it's like my home, I. I it's closed now, they just closed, <sighs> wow, first hardcore in Italy, DJ Cirillo, first industrial, first clubs to really play trance, techno, man, I, I've just been a part, man, the limelight, fuck, I can't even forget that, you know, the, you know, Roxy, oh, uh, there's so many, there's so many. So many. Oh god, there's so many, I used to collect those little things you know the staff the little cards you get oh dj artist kind of thing oh yeah the vip badges i don't know how big the boxes were but there were boxes boxes just full when i met julie i think we started throwing them all out i used to have them i used to have an office in manhattan and every fucking wall had flyers these things all over hundreds and hundreds they wouldn't even put them all up they were in boxes just i have a couple of them left through all the floods and moving but not the thousands I did I think I'm under just under 3,000 gigs now um what that's a lot what are your favorite possible. records that you've ever made Mescalely Maya was the best that we released I would have to say Looney Tunes and The Fallout because eh, it just made things happen for me in a lot of, lot of great ways uh, the English Muffin, that was a, a dope one. My album with Radium, that really kicked off the French core a little bit better. Uh, what year was that from? Mm, Around. Two, seven, it was about seven, eight years ago, maybe, right? Seven, maybe ten, maybe ten years ago. But see, I jump in and out. I don't stay very long in anything, you know? But if I do another French core track, it's with somebody else and it's there's a distance. I don't believe in. It's not my total style, so I like to move around. But, yeah, I I think those were... Oh, well, it was a New Order, too. There's so, there's, there's so fucking many. I, you know, I, I would stick with, with those because they actually are, are memorable. The Homeboy Hippie and Funky Dread, the KLF, What Time is Love, Bones Breaks and all those drum drops and all those things that we used to do. You know, there's so many memories in each one. That's why I said, for, you know, forgotten moments. That's one of my best tracks. And I got to tell you, it was a bomb. And I don't mean the bomb. It just, nobody caught it. And then, I don't know, seven years, 10 years later, everyone said, oh, this is the anthem of everything. And I said, "Wow, well, I didn't have confidence in myself to continue this. I, I got so discouraged. I said, maybe I'm pushing things a little too, to one way and the other, and I'm not getting it. And a few years, well, all those years later, I got it. They all got it. They were like, we missed this record. I said, yeah, I didn't. I just thought nobody liked it. You know, you got to do what you got to do, but...
0: I mean, it's interesting that we're talking now because I feel like we've definitely been in the midst of a huge revival of industrial techno, hardcore gabber uh, around the world. And there's got to be a lot of people coming on to records of yours that you made years ago that they're just discovering it for the first time. I'm kind of interested in your perspective. um, And this is something that I was talking to Mark the Mover about.
1: He would have a very cool perspective Hard, too.
0: Hardcore, uh, for a lot of years, especially in the 90s, had a very in-your-face aesthetic. And I think there was a sense of humor to oh. a lot of things people were putting out. You <laughs> oh, know, like people weren't necessarily you. serious about some oh. of the ridiculous things that people were saying on oh. the records and, and the kind of like very like violent, sometimes like... You know, it was it's kind of like I a could, horror like B movie, but we're in such a different time now. Uh, yeah, you totally. know, we're in like a way more woke time and some of the things that would have been said on those records you cannot. Well, I'll give you, you an example people DJ, would not like them now.
1: DJ Skinhead, Extreme Terror. Nobody would think that and they go, Oh, that's fucking Nazi racist No. All these motherfuckers had bald heads. (laughs) I was the long-haired motherfucker. Everything was getting cheesy. And me and Darien Kelly in Carl Cox's house. I don't know what we were doing. And we were just going, extreme. We were just fucking Carl's wife is like, what the hell, Carl? And I said, look, I came back. I said, why don't we call this shit fucking Extreme Terror? I'm the long-haired hippie. Fuck you, DJ skinhead fucking bitches. And that's what the record was about. DOA, you hear all these samples. Oh, I fucked you. Up. That was how we got the, the, the vibe out. It actually made sense when you listen to that. You know, You listen to the new shit now. It's a little, yeah, it was a bit subversive. But yeah, you're right. It was not politically correct. But it told a story. And it didn't tell you you were fucked because you were this or fucked because you do that. It's fucked because this is me fucked and I'm telling you how fucked I am. Like, look, uh, Citronica, all those records from Oliver Chesler. They weren't about you. The stupidity we put in the studio had humor. It had a bit of bravado. And for me, I tried not to cross a certain line even back then. I was getting some... Asking for some Nazi parties that I had to really watch out for, which I turned down a lot. I mean, when someone offers you $10,000 for a fucking gig in a place in Germany that should not have a 10000 fucking dollar budget, makes you think, you know? So I always keep industrial. I don't say anything about color, uh, gay, this. I just, anyone brings me that, they better just throw it in the garbage because I won't even... Fucking listen to it. I love everybody and I, I just want, they have aggression within and they need to get it out. And And when you listen to this music, it, it's kind of an escape, you know? It's not a fucking license to go fucking have a fight. That, I have to say, is a farmer attitude. That's a fucking idiot, you know? And they're going to be an idiot in a house club, idiot in a drum and bass club. You get them all. So at the end, it was never about that for me. I didn't even fucking like rock and roll music and fucking at that time. I didn't even care about it. I thought it would be a great way to get more aggression and more passion and more, more. You know, that was that was all it was about. It's not like, hey, I'm coming around hating you because you do this. I, I was the biggest non-fucking hater out of all. Now I can't say it for the other guys, but that's the way I look at it. Even now, I got an old, I got a record coming and this guy was saying shit that I don't agree with, so I said. That's it. Take it out or fucking take it somewhere else. I don't give a shit how great it is. I will not cross that line ever. And if I ever did, no, I never did. I I never did. Even those aggressive records from DOA, they never said, you're gay, you're this, you're fucked. It's about, I'm fucking this, I'm fucking that, and if you got a fucking miserable life, you could fucking relate to this And that's really what it was about That's what hardcore music, punk music They don't care what you think about their music They're making that And if you can connect to it Job done So yeah, anyone who kind of goes that vibe with me Prove it Show me the record where I said that Show me the release where I did that And that's that's it, I think It comes from inside I'm happy about that You know, good morning Why is it so good? <laughs> Well,
0: Lenny. Sad to say, we're out of time.
1: Oh, we need another hour. So we just we just crusted the cake right now.
0: I know. Well, hopefully we'll get a part two. Thank you so
1: much. Great. Awesome. This was amazing. Thank you for for the opportunity to do it. I appreciate it. Never come down. Never come down. That's what we said. If you get old, go out and party. You'll become young again. That's the secret.